Can I listen to your podcast? Dario, do you have any ideas for a name for this podcast? Mm, it's something I think I'm going to have to think about. <laughs> I got one idea. I was thinking middle school. Because you're new school, I'm old school, somewhere in the middle is middle I like school. It, I like it. I think so there's, I, there's one idea. I think we got it. I think we got it. There we go. <laughs> if, anybody else, if anybody else has any suggestions for a name, feel free to email Dario or myself. There we go. Well, let's, let's kick this thing off, man. Well, uh, I think it's been an uh, exciting time for the music industry. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of uh, craziness going on in terms of innovation. There's a lot of changing happening in the industry. And the intersection between music, technology, and finance is something that's near and dear to both of our hearts. 100%. I think uh, if you look at what's happened over the past week, we've got this new Music Friday. It is indeed. It is indeed. And we'll talk about our, our, our tracks that we're listening to or that we liked from the, the new Music Friday playlist on Spotify a little later. Your, your guilty pleasures. Indeed. Things indeed. you might not be proud of, but you still <laughs> listen to them. That I still listen to, definitely. <laughs> There's been a lot of awesome new businesses coming out in the music tech space. It's been really great to see that people are starting to innovate and think about change in the space. So we're going to unpack that a bit, discuss a couple of industry trends and topics. You know, Barn, this past week, I see Lil Wayne's The Carter Five miraculously appeared on, on the interwebs. Yeah, you're, you're a big uh, uh, leak and kind of track release guy. So what did you think about uh, it coming out in that way? I think it was interesting because, I mean, to provide some history, not everyone knows this, but the album was recorded, I think, 2012 to 2014. There was a two-disc kind of what people like to call OG track list that uh, got released over those years. And because of legal frustrations between Lil Wayne and Birdman, the album only really released last year. If you look at you know, some of the songs are unfinished. Some of the songs were used in mixtapes or as feature songs in other artists' albums, such as Two Chains with the Collar Grove collaboration or the Believe Me track with Drake, which was meant to be the initial promotional track back in, in 2014. The, the album's interesting, man. You know, there's a Big Sean collaboration where I think if I was Big Sean, I'd be frustrated because his, his feature verse is actually pretty good. Mm. The hook of the song isn't so great. That's called Mute if you want to go troll the internet and find that. In terms of the leak community, I know Scotty Pippen and, and The Life of Mr. Carter were huge requests. Scotty Pippen's great. It's like classic Wayne, mm. the Carter 3, behind a mic, kind of off the top, going hard. It's, 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 it's great. And, and the Carter 5 had a weird history in that it was released officially and it got kind of a lukewarm reception, right? And now this kind of leaked version has some of the original tracks. Am I right in that, that thinking? Yeah. You know, it, there, there's some tracks that were pulled through. I think some tracks were remastered and, and redone. You know, the Mona Lisa track with Kendrick mm -hmm. Lamar. Uh, I think, you know, people's perceptions of these artists change because when you've had a hiatus for so long, in the case of Lil Wayne, he likes to release a lot of content and, and some of that content's not necessarily polished. It makes uh, it, it opens you up to criticism. What is particularly interesting about that album, though, is that if you look at the track lengths as well, on average, those tracks are four to six minutes. Look at the release of the Carter Five now. It, the tracks are a lot shorter, and that's a common trend in the industry. It's gone from a two-disc album. Sure, it's around 17 tracks, which, which makes sense because I think there was a bit of uh, generosity involved there you know, sure. to, to, keep the, to keep the hungry fans happy. But if you look at how albums have changed, and I'd say the evolution of an album over time, it's, it's no longer re really, I think, with the exception of maybe Post Malone's Hollywood's Bleeding. You know, it's really like a 12-track album, maybe 
two minutes a track. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, right? I mean, I grew up with uh, the likes of Biggie Smalls and Ready to Die and Life After Death and, you know, kind of albums being a release event, right? Like mm-hmm. everybody kind of fiending after that kind of latest album. And, you know, sure, we know some data around kind of CD sales and how vinyl's kind of making a comeback and whatever else. But I think it's really interesting to see the evolution of the album, right? And I was thinking about it this morning, actually, that I wonder if the whole creation of the album was also partly because of the distribution channel, right? So you had this technology, you had this platform, whether it was vinyl, whether it was an eight track, whether it was, you know, a tape or whether it was a CD. And now, you know, whether it be evolved into newer versions of releasing uh, tracks, right? That you had this hardware that you had to put the software, i.e. the music onto that platform. And now with streaming, I wonder if that's really having an impact in changing the way we think about releasing music. It's no longer the distribution of a hardware system that gets into people's hands that they put into something. Now it's becoming all digital, right? So you're streaming, you're digesting, you're distributing all through a digital platform. And I wonder if that's what's really kind of impacting the change. So you don't go from a standard 8, 10, 12, maybe 15 songs at the max. Oh, we've got more than 15 songs. It's a double album. Right now, it becomes an album can be anything, right? It can mm-hmm. be an EP of five songs. It can be three songs. It can be 20 songs. You know, who knows what the definition of an album is? And, and I wonder if that's because the technology's changed and how we're digesting music has changed. For sure. I think, I think you've, you've touched on so many points there. Content creation is, is, is at the word the content economy. People like to call it the attention economy. The average album traditionally, let's just say, uh, an artist worked on an album for two years, huge marketing and sales machine with a label, huge impact through the record store, and maybe a CD single to lead up to the promotion. Nowadays, it's bam, here's a new album of yeah. 10 tracks yeah. or 20 tracks. Next week, another one, another one. People are so content hungry. It puts a lot of pressure on the artist. What is interesting is I remember when the game was recording the follow-up to the documentary, which 2005 is the documentary, uh, he put out a two put out the documentary 2 and he put out the documentary 2.5 and uh even though there was a lot of there were a lot of tracks on that album he said that Dr Dre's advice was keep the album tight people can uh, people's attention span only lasts around 12 tracks max mm. that rhymes and and i think what's been interesting is that when you look at maybe albums of today and the the length of those albums do you really play it through from the beginning to end do you no, I mean, the last album I played end-to-end, I can't even remember. I mean, you end up skipping through stuff or you'll kind of use a playlist and see what songs other people have curated, right? You're kind of hoping that somebody somewhere has listened to the whole album through and has kind of picked the gems for you on that side. I mean, you know, kind of the Post Malone album, I waited and kind of saw what tracks got picked on the playlist. I talked to you mm. and you told me, you know, track two, track five, or this track or that track name. Uh, actually, I do remember in the past, in the same things that would happen with other albums, you know, I had a friend who would tell me, yeah, listen to this track number, this track number, that track number, the rest of the album's garbage, mm. right? And I feel like that's kind of changing, but I don't, I might have never listened to a track, an album end to end, unless it was like, you know, one of my all time favorites, like a Nas or a Biggie or otherwise, I can't remember an album that I've listened to end to end. Um, I guess I'm just a widow because, you know, when, <laughs> when I was a kid, the, the most exciting thing for me was when new music was released on a Thursday or a Friday, I'd come home from school, play, a tra- play an, an album, lie on my bed and just listen to it from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And I found that it was just it would kind of take you into another world. And, and you'd really 
try and understand the creative approach behind that artist. Uh, you know, I think, and I've always been of this opinion, is if you look at the concept album, that, that is what would make an album attractive to the modern day consumer, the person who kind of, you almost have a kind of uh, content exhaustion, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. A good example would be Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City. Mm. You know, this week it actually outperformed Eminem's The Eminem Show for the longest running album, I believe, on the Billboard Stand to be corrected, I think Billboard 200. Okay. Kendrick Lamar's Dam, which can be played front to back, back to front. Why? Because when you listen to it, it's an entire story. The, the same thing applies to Eminem's Relapse album. Uh, it, it received a lot of criticism, which is uh, partly responsible for his change in direction. And it's nice to see that Kamikaze's kind of come back thematically, full circle to that Slim Shady-esque type of, of, of album. It's funny because there's so much hype around an album these days. It's a good example, Ed Sheeran's yeah. uh, collab album, yeah, right? Yeah. I'm part of these forums and everyone's like, oh, there's a, there's a, there's a collab with Eminem and 50 Cent. This is crazy. Actually, you know, saying that that is an album I did listen to end to end. Okay. And I think it's interesting because, you know, our family, I've got two little ones and they both like Ed Sheeran as well. And it's interesting hearing my daughters had these conversations on the playground even about the Ed Sheeran album. And she's like, our, our other kind of little girls have been talking to her about how this album Ed Sheeran's <laughs> rapping too much and things like that. And she's had to school them with some knowledge about how actually, oh, Ed Sheeran was rapping even on the earlier kind of albums as well. It's just this one with the collaborations and you get, you know, your Stormzy and whatever else and the remixes of that with grime artists, you know, end to end. I thought that was a fascinating album. You know, going back to to your kind of experience of how you kind of received new music, I thought that was really interesting because if I think back about my childhood, you know, the way I received new music was watching, uh, we had the equivalent of MTV in Canada, Much Music. And there was a Rap City program on a Friday afternoon after I've school. Heard of this. Yeah, yeah. And you'd get Rap City and you'd see what videos would come out or what stuff they were talking about. You'd get the Friday night radio shows and you'd listen to pirate radio or whatever it might be. And you'd hear these tracks. And those would be the things that you would be kind of curating the music that way. So for me, kind of the album wasn't the big release thing. It was actually still having that curation. And I wonder that's why I'm consuming music in the same kind of way. Now, just instead of the Rap City MTV or a Much Music VJ, um, mm. or even you know, kind of the um, the DJs who were in New York, and you'd get the recorded radio shows. But those guys that you get the recordings of those radio shows, and they would be curating music, and that's kind of where I've now migrated to the Spotify DJ, who's kind of curating that playlist. Sure, you know, it's it's and you've hit on so many interesting points there. It's like I've always had this peeve because growing up I used to watch a lot of MTV like yourself and I remember on a Friday with the European chart show on a Sunday I'd stay up you know past my bedtime so I'd listen to the US hip-hop chart show and the contrast in in, in songs that would be released oh, was huge and you know you'd walk I remember we went to the States in 2001 we'd be in Atlanta and uh, the music store had Ludacris's word of mouth everywhere Right. I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, I need to listen to this guy because Nelly was big at the time sure. and you're know, even Atlanta. So it was like Luda. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and those were the organic ways of discovering music mm. for me. And it's interesting listening to how not only you used to consume music and discover music, but now how it's changed completely. And, and I, I find it, it sh can be challenging to some degree for some people because, you know, unless you're, you're a muso like ourselves, people just kind of digest whatever's out there yeah and i and more and more kind of it's like playlist curation right sure. has kind of replaced the mixtape right people used to make mixtapes for people and you distribute these mixtapes uh and now it's becoming this curated playlist 
And so I think for the average person, though, you know, this, you still will pay for a streaming subscription, and then you're just relying on whether it's Zane Lowe at, at Beats or it's you and me kind of curating playlists or it's somebody who we don't even know, but the, the playlist itself, whether it's Rap Caviar or the Hot Hit, Hot List or whatever it might be, that's becoming that curation for people to discover kind of music that way. Yeah, it's, it's, and now that's a good segue into something which I found particularly fascinating by these platforms is that they, they're, in, they're an enabler. Mm. So if you take an example of Kanye West's The Life of Pablo, right? That album was, it's almost like a stream of consciousness album. It, it, it put a stake in the ground as to how you could potentially transform the creative process for an artist. So just bear with me. I, yeah, yeah, it might sound it. like I'm kind of veering away from the conversation. Kanye is a difficult conversation for any two sane people to have. So, <laughs> so I'm interested to see where we go with this. So, so the life of Pablo has talked about for ages. You know, it was renamed a couple times. Album gets released on some platforms. I, I stand to be corrected. I think it was first on Tidal. Comes up on Spotify. X many tracks. The next day, track three, five, and seven have changed. Yeah. The features have disappeared, or the features have changed. Tracks one, two, and three are four minutes longer. Whatever, right? So it's this, it's this awesome stream of consciousness, con- continually iterative creative process, which I find fascinating, right? So what would happen traditionally was an artist, particularly in the hip-hop community, would have to put out a mixtape, right? A mixtape was typically subpar material to get your name out in the street, as you would know, yeah. I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, FYI. And there was a lot of time spent about putting out good quality content for an album release. But what the streaming platforms have allowed you to do is to continuously evolve that process and to be in control of your release at any given point in time. Now, what's interesting about this model is that it serves two two sides of the coin. The one is it keeps your fans engaged. It creates a discussion and debate, so it's organic marketing, but it also impacts your royalty opportunities, Mm. right? So to take it back to the leaked community, these OG tracks of The Life of Pablo got released, and some of them are awesome, man. And I'm just like... And it's the same thing that happened with the way in the Carter Five. Yeah. It happens with so many artists. It's probably this, you know, you're too close to it. It's perfectionist element. I mean, we all, we all have it. It's interesting, right? Because you, what you're seeing is how technology's impacted uh, the way we kind of consume media altogether, right? So before, uh, you'd get something in the newspaper, right? And the correction would have to happen, you know, in the next day's newspaper or the next week's episode if there was a mistake or anything like that, right? is evolving, so you have this concept within the application community or, or software community around the minimal viable product, right, the MVP. And I think what you're seeing with albums as well is kind of the minimal viable album, right? It's like, how am I kind of okay to release this? I'm all right, but oh, wait, no, the community's engaging with this, and I kind of see that this track was a little bit unpolished or this feature, you know, outshines me or whatever it might be as an artist. So you go back into the lab you kind of refocus, you change bits and pieces. And I think you're absolutely right that it does impact their royalties and it impacts their commercial kind of viability of it. But it also gives that artist kind of more uh, access and more availability of kind of different sounds or different feedback, right? In the same way that you take a product and you release it to the market and the market tells you, you know, from a usability perspective or a user experience perspective that it's not quite working for them. In the same way, you can release tracks, you can see, does it work for my audience? Get that feedback and revive on some of those areas as well. It's quite interesting to see how that's evolved. Completely. I think what, what I'm a little bit disappointed by is that less artists do it. Yeah. 
and I don't know if it's a legacy thing. Young Thug was probably the most recent recognition of it on, on Ecstasy track three of the So Much Fun album, which for some strange reason people always say is his debut, but Beautiful Thugger Girls was definitely his debut. But anyway, he, he changed the track, dropped his third verse and got MGK involved. Again, brings in a new fan base, a whole new element. But despite all of this, artists supposedly only make around 12% mm. of, of their content. And, you know, Lil Nas X, when he put his EP out, he, he made a Twitter status about Panini being particularly short just so that he could, you know, maximize his royalties. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so the, the track length is really kind of impacting uh, the commercial viability of these uh, streaming on these streaming platforms for the artist, right? So they're making shorter tracks so that they get maximum streams, right? If an album is 10 tracks of all two and a half minutes, you're more likely to blitz through and kind of listen to every track, go back to. Because if you think about time is not changing, right? You have your half an hour commute, your 40 minute commute, maybe your hour and a half. And so you're spending that time kind of listening to whether it's a podcast or whether it's music, you know, you have that kind of time that's boxed, right? So to maximize your stream capability, having smaller tracks or, or, or you know, kind of more tracks at smaller sizes means that that individual customer can listen to way more tracks and then as an artist you're making more royalties fascinating uh, have we become lazy as consumers right and and does that influence the quality of music that's being put out there that combined with the platforms that are available and can we blame the og or legacy artists for that mm. so you got these bite-sized songs in comparison to what was traditionally released it's a byproduct of the the environments I guess we live in, in a, in a big city and for people in the world these days where music is typically digestible and bite-sized bite-sized chunks, chunks. Mm. so you, you you get guys like I don't know your favorite Little Pump and, oh, and uh, 6 9 he's for those who are listening boy. you did not see me roll my eyes heavily at the mention of Little Pump <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean a simple what two minute track saying Gucci Gang yeah. like what like 500 times works yeah and and yeah sure it's frustrating and and things like trap music i think strongly opinionated yeah are starting to become you're getting a bit of fatigue migos fatigue mm. you know that type of music has a certain niche to it and i think you're trying to see some of the ogs come back and try and reclaim what's technically there but they're partially to blame as well man like you like there's that that syllables track which eminem was yeah. it, what was it eminem dr dre jay-z 50 Cent, Cashes, and Bobby Creekwater, and Stack Quo. Yeah. Actually, I don't think Bobby Creekwater was on there. Uh, for those of you who don't know, those were, were old signees to Shady Records during 2006. Yeah. That never really made it. But what's interesting about that track is he calls it out. He says at the beginning of the track, like it's not about lyrics anymore. It's about a hot beat and a catchy hook. Mm -hmm. And that was two th what recorded 2007. So do you think that was kind of the start of the mumble rap side of things? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it was the start of the, the mumble raps, necessarily i think the i mean man that time that era was a bad whether you had like hurricane chris and soldier boy and like all those weirdos releasing yeah. music what little, little mama lip gloss let's let's fast forward on that <laughs> time if we can the point of that that track which i think it should have been released look it wasn't but it's it was a sign that the quality of music is being jeopardized however the point i was trying to make was these artists complained about it mm. yet a lot of them never release music yeah and so if the terrain is up for grabs, somebody's going to come in and take it. It's like that in, in every industry. 
you don't release music for five years. You come back and you complain, oh, the landscape's changed. Well, you didn't release music for five years. Sure, you know, there's things like writer's block and, and, and other personal issues that come, in, that come into, into the way. But it's also this perfectionist mentality that is the thing that everyone in the creative environment mm. struggles with. I mean, you've seen it in the venture building capacity. You see it with releasing personal content. I guess we might see it with even releasing this podcast. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's like um, you sit on it, you sit on it, and I guess... It's funny, right? Like the the Dre album that was in production for you know kind of forever, basically. And detox, detox, which 2020. I think <laughs> the amount of media that was written around kind of when detox will be released and the detox process and and all of that, right? It's interesting to see that you know kind of you've got almost this dichotomy, right? On the one hand, you've got an art artists that are so focused on almost perfection. And don't feel the need or want to really release. And, you know, I mean, Dre's a, an example of somebody who's had a lot of other business interests that maybe were taking up the majority of time, or he was working on other artists and getting them out and still fine tuning detox uh, in the meantime, and maybe will never release it. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, your young thugs or, you know, your, your other kind of artists who are or Kanye or whoever it might be that are releasing albums and then tweaking them on the fly, right? Oh, it's released, but hey, oh, I didn't like how that track came out, so I'm going to change it up in the middle of that. And it's interesting that we're seeing that kind of spread in terms of the spectrum of what artists will do to release music. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, the, 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 the Dr. Dre issue is like, I mean, that's a whole topic for another, for yeah, another totally. episode. That could be a deep dive for I, episode two. I mean... I hear, I, I read that Flying Lotus says that there's a third version of Detox that's out there. I think that they were expecting Compton to do better. So I've got a theory, right? Hit me with your theory. Okay. So Detox has been in production, I think, since two thousand, like around 2002 to 2004, right? Within that time bracket. Yeah. Since then, what, it's been, uh, what, almost like 16 years, 17, 17 years, sorry? Give or take. And he's worked with... Eminem in his prime, 50 Cent in his prime, Lil Wayne in his prime, Drake in his prime. He's Kendrick. used Kendrick Lamar in his prime. He's now got Anderson Park in his prime. Yeah, uh, you know, think about all the aftermath signees, God. all the access to artists that want to work with him. Uh, even at the game, you yeah. know, during that phase. Okay, and, and, and there was a, I remember listening to an interview a couple of years ago where Drake talks about, Drake got him in a room to, to, to help him write tracks. Point being, You've got almost two decades of music yeah. of artists in their prime, right? Of probably thousands of tracks that haven't been released. All you need to do is release that hip hop Bible, which is Detox, the elusive Detox, one album per artist or whatever it may be. And that is literally the hip hop mecca. I don't think that anybody would ever be able to top that. And the amount of impact it would create and pressure it would put on new artists today is mind blowing. But you're assuming that the album's any good. Right? <laughs> like the, there's, there's also the likelihood that you know, kind of Dre's verses or other artists' verses are not kind of their, their best material because their best material we might have consumed already, True. right? Like, how does 50 Cent top, hey, shorty, it's your birthday? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's kind of a hard lyric or a hard hook to kind of top, right? So uh, I meant that kind of like half-mockingly, right? Because A, it was a terrible lyric, but at the same time, it was catchy as F, yeah. right? So everybody knew that track from the couple of beats that would come on and, and off you'd go. You know, for me, it's a gut feel thing. I'm being biased here. I was a Shady Records fanboy. It's what I grew up with. I mean, like, what? I, I still buy albums today, despite the fact that HMV is closed down in London and you practically can't buy them. 
But my counter argument to you is the perfectionist element of the Aftermath crew mm. is beyond what, in my opinion, even is necessary in, in the industry, let alone today. Mm. I mean, sure, if maybe it was coming from Jimmy Iovine, might be a different story because, I mean, he is like the maker of, 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 of many. But, you know, they've, they've, they've sat on, on so many good artists and there's good material. I mean, I know as a side note, like what Eminem records, like what 100 to 300 tracks for an album before cutting it down. And then some of the stuff you hear, which was unreleased and you're like, man, why didn't you release that? Or he loses a notebook and never gets it recorded. <laughs> yeah, with the Britney Spears cover. Yeah, yeah I know yeah. what you're talking about. I think it was in Sweden or something weird. Anyway, I mean. So I think on that note, we've kind of gone deep on kind of album trends. And I think we'll continue to see some evolution in how artists record music. All right. Shall we move on and, and talk about tech in music? Let's do it. All right. Well, tell me, Dario, what are, what are some of the interesting companies and interesting trends that you're seeing from a technology perspective in the music industry? Man, there's a lot. So what's particularly interesting for me is the royalty space. People are trying to innovate in the royalty space with content creation, as I mentioned earlier, being at the forefront and artists being squeezed out despite the streaming platforms and, and labels. You know, for the first time in 15 years, it's three years of consecutive growth, making more money. Uh, so artists have to typically tour, they're pressured to put out more content, makes it very difficult. So people that are trying to democratize access to music royalties is, 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 is awesome, right? It's complicated. It's difficult. There are many different types of royalties. Trying to understand that, man, I can't even, I don't even know what to call it, so-called flowcharts of royalty stream, royalty distribution is extremely difficult. But people are trying to do it. I think... You know, we've come across the likes of, of Vest, which is a LA-based company or so. What they do is they partner with songwriters or somebody that was involved or credited to the production or, or the release of a song. So uh, this is all hypothetical, by the way, but uh, let's just assume, uh, what, a Beyonce track um, and, and person X was involved at some point in the, in the, in the, the, the creation of that track. Person X decides they want to put their rights up available on Vest. Why? So that they can, so that they basically are receiving a cash advance on those royalties. Those royalties go up onto the Vest platform, B2C model, and yourself, myself, anybody can can invest in that share of royalties uh, for a specific period, uh, putting in a minimum of ten US dollars up, um, and then that you earn the income streams from those royalties. Now, as a caveat, remember they're very like. Publishing rights are very different to masters and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it gets confusing. I mean, just to be clear, there's no way that I'm endorsing whether these are, you know, successful models. I put some money, you know, I've got what I put, I've got like a couple bucks in, in Migos featuring 21 Savage. I got an Ariana Grande, Jesse J track, bang, bang, bang. Yeah. It's basically like a secondary market, right? Where you're taking a small slice of somebody else's equity in that song and you're hoping for the dividend to kind of pay out in terms of the streaming platforms or purchases of that particular track or other commercial uses of that track as well. Yes, the difference is, or the, the issue is that those types of royalties, depending on, the, you know, depending on what it is, there's a time delay. So you're typically looking at six to seven months. That, and that's if there aren't any royalty disputes. So if you're looking for ROI, it's difficult. 
Yeah. Right? Sometimes you read in the forums, people are like, oh, I made 40% return, but it depends how you're calculating that. I think for what is interesting is that they partner, they can partner with with publishers, you know, and and the opportunity for publishing houses to generate additional income on tracks that they aren't necessarily monetizing off because only labels or publishing groups or whatever you want to call them are only really monetizing off the top 2% of their catalog. It's interesting, right? Because at the same time, I think margins are getting shrunk, right? Because the amount that you make off a streaming platform off of a number of streams or YouTube off of a number of streams of the video or whatever else, all of these are getting pressurized, right? So if you're an artist or, you know, God forbid, somebody who worked on the production of a particular song and maybe has some kind of royalties or rights to royalties on that piece, you're kind of left waiting for some time to know whether or not you're going to make any kind of return. And it is a bit of a market and a bit of a gamble for other people to come in and invest. And at the same time, you're seeing artists diversify their commercial opportunities, right? Like in terms of the rock nations and the live nations and the artists performance side of things or the merch side of things, or, you know, whether they are investing their own capital. Got a whiskey. Got away. Exactly. They build their own tequila brand or their whiskey brand. They're trying to diversify because I think the pressure is, you know, for the artists themselves, get the music heard. But at the same time, if the margins are shrinking on that, how else can you make money? And so if you're somebody who's a writer, on that and maybe isn't a well-known kind of established brand personally. So you're not getting upfront cash. You're getting a, a, a percentage on the, the potential of that song. You're left kind of waiting. And hopefully at some point, the song itself kind of blows up. And that becomes a real challenge for people who are responsible for, you know, whether it's dropping the beat or whether it's, you know, kind of writing a lyric or whatever it might be. How do you actually get any kind of commercial success on that? They're almost like, you know, the, the gig economy worker, right? You're yeah. kind of, they're, they're the Uber drivers of that journey, right? And how do they actually kind of commercialize their, their, their blood, sweat, and tears? Well, I mean, you hit it on the head there. It's, it's, so the, the problem they're trying to solve is cash advanced for the creative yeah. to try and mitigate that downside. And then the, art, the, the fan to buy into the, 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 the artist in inverted commas. Like, to be clear, they do not enter into any agreement with the artist. Yeah. So it might be Beyonce's track, but you're dealing with random number 50 who decided to put his or her rights up because they want the money up front. And to your point, they're kind of unknown and, you know, they sit, sit there waiting. But the biggest question I have to all these people trying to solve royalty problems, got royalty exchange that does it on a catalog basis as a really high value catalogs. Uh, you've even, you even see in the private equity space, firms that are focused specifically on investing in Michael Jackson's catalog or whatever it may be, is, is this a vanity investment? And on a, on a consumer level, on an individual consumer level. So if it's a vanity investment, cool. So we can, you know, in the context of the UK, sit in a pub and say, oh, hey, Farhan, like I've got an investment in Meek Mill featuring Cardi B because I do. Like what? Why am I not surprised, Dario, that you have an investment in Meek Mill featuring Cardi B? Yeah, and I don't, I don't like, <laughs> Cardi B's not my vibe. I was just like Meek Mill. You know, this yeah. could, this, until you can show that you can actually generate sustainable returns for somebody in that space and there are there are, there, are, there are other companies that are trying to solve this problem now we can go down that rabbit hole let's not okay. i mean i think the the interesting thing is just that we're seeing that trend right that but at the same time the question still remains about a how big a market is it right in terms of people who are actually interested in purchasing in terms of monitoring and then monetizing that access as well as 
how big is that kind of return that people can make? So you've got one side of that equation around what is the volume of people that actually would be engaged and interested in that? Because like you said, you know, you're a bit of a music head, so you're quite interested in how that analytical side of music happens. Now, you know, what does that bell curve look like in terms of where exactly are you on that curve of how many people are actually interested in that behavior and will purchase or will practice or will participate in that market? And then on the flip side, how big are the returns? And I think those are the two big questions that we're still left without answers to actually understand if these companies will be successful or not. All right, Dario, it's Friday. That means that there's a new Music Friday playlist, but it also is a good opportunity for us to recap what we've been listening to this week, what artists have kind of caught our eye or caught our ear, what we're, what we're really enjoying, what we're bouncing to on the tube, uh, and what we're playing on, on repeat. So tell me, and who are you kind of really passionate about right now? So I've, I've been listening to the Carter Five because, you know, I need to make my comparisons. Got to <laughs> compare the two versions. I mean, remember when it dropped, I messaged you. I was like, dude, dude. <laughs> um, so, so that's been cool. President Carter, great track. Kind of guilty pleasure for me, which I guess is kind of controversial in the hip-hop space, and at least Tyler, the creator, would support me here, is Eminem's Relapse album. I've always liked it. It's a concept album. I love the horrorcore side of things. Been messing with a bit of uh, Redman recently. You know, he's got a new album coming out yeah. soon. And, and some DMX, as always. You know, the dog man. So, so I've got to admit that I've been more into the pop than, than hip-hop right now. So the albums and the tracks that, that I've been paying attention to, I am still um, jamming hard to Ed Sheeran's collabs album. Uh, the remix to Take Me Back to London with the okay. other grime artists, uh, JK and Eich. I think it's pronounced uh, H. H. Uh, you know, have have got me really appreciating grime in a way I never thought I would. Um, I'm. And it's really interesting to also see uh, from a media perspective the issue be- issues between kind of Stormzy and some of the other artists, kind of talking about how Ed Sheeran is is kind of maybe leveraging grime uh, to to make it kind of more poppy. Yeah, uh, interesting. I'm also listening to Mark Ronson's new album. Okay, uh, I think it's his most kind of personal work. Uh, I'm a big fan of Yeba. I think her voice is incredible, and I'm I'm really enjoying uh, the Mark the Mark Ronson stuff. Um, there's a track by Black Coffee featuring Usher, go. South Africa represent. There you go, South Africa represent Black Coffee featuring Usher called La 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 that I cannot get enough of. That track is over and over and on my on my playlist. So I think, right, hypothesis is yeah. that Kanye's new album, what well, I think it's called Jesus Walks next week, uh, next Friday release, 27th of September, provided nothing changes. You never know with you that guy. Know. Should be Jesus Walks, but anyway. I have a sneaky suspicion you might see a Black Coffee collab there. I, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, Black Coffee is, is making some great stuff. He's the man. He's uh, the man. On the new music playlist, uh, track for this, our tracks for this week, it was interesting to see uh, a new Blink-182 kind of track. What did you think about that? Man, so, so uh, it kind of disappoints me that Tom DeLonge's not there. I think they got Matt Skiver. He tries. You know, at least you got Travis Barker. You can flick a drumstick. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting album. I was listening to Neighborhoods yesterday, which was the last album they released together as mm. the original group. And then 
I think California was that what they released a couple of years ago. It's it's got some good tracks. Dark Side. They they they're clearly trying to repeat a formula. The formula that didn't break. You've seen it with many artists. Uh, it's I, I think it needs to just mature more for me. But it's definitely something. I'm not gonna lie. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure. I listen to it, reminiscent of 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 some of the the punk what the the punk rock yeah, days. Punk rock days. Yeah, and some other kind of tracks that that I've been uh, listening to this morning on on the new Music Friday playlist that I'm enjoying there's a, an artist called gashi who i'd never heard of before but apparently he's from that french montana clique uh uh-huh. he's a kosovan brooklyn-based kind of rapper uh and i really like his track yesterday uh that's on the new music friday playlist and it's interesting to see some uh not necessarily old school but uh some of the artists who've been around for a while so alicia keys has a track with miguel that i had high hopes for uh we'll see if i listen to it a couple more <laughs> times if i if i end up liking it a lot uh, alongside, uh, you mentioned to me, I haven't heard the track yet, but there's the Gangstar and J. Cole uh, track yeah. as well. So that that's super rad to hear, man. They they it, It's so great to see some of the older guys coming out of the woodworks and at least J. Cole trying to, trying to help facilitate that and leverage that gap between the, the middle school, like you say. Yeah. And uh, so so it, 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 it's good. I mean, it's not super high energy, but it's something you'll put on maybe if you're driving your car or, or just... Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to hear the, the guru J. Cole kind of back and forth, hopefully, that, that they have similar kind of, um, kind of tones in terms of how, how they represent. I mean, it definitely works. Okay. It definitely works. Um, one thing that's interesting to point out was... G-Eazy released a track oh, yeah. with Nef the Pharaoh. He's doing a lot of stuff from the Bay Area. It's on his B-Sides album, which is interesting. It's Again, to our earlier conversation, it's great to see that an artist is, is just putting things out, man. Like, calls of B-Sides, knows he might not be good, but there's some good ones in there. Funnily enough, he's actually got a track with T-Pain. Yeah. You know, I remember you and T-Pain. <laughs> yeah, me and T-Pain. Um, well... We'll we'll leave that story for another day. I think that's that's a good note for for us to wrap up. But talking about taking some chances and putting some stuff out. That's basically what we've tried to do here. We've taken a chance. We've recorded our first podcast. Hooray for us! Uh, temporary called Woo-hoo! Middle School, where old school meets new school. But if you have any suggestions uh, as you're listening to us talk, so feel free to drop us a line and give us your suggestions. We want to hear it. So congratulations if you made it this far. Daria, if people want to give you feedback, how do they find you on Twitter or any of the other social channels? Oh, man. On Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Dario underscore Devet. That's D-E-W-E-T. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at at Farhan Lalji. We'll try to find some place to put show notes and stuff where you can kind of click on and, and there you go. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, guys. Can I listen to your podcast?